Father, thank you so much for another season of STM, and thank you for these men, and thank you for all the men who serve uh, uh, to make this possible, to uh, bring us a good breakfast, hot coffee, and uh, get the room set up, just everything that goes on here. Thank you for Ryan, too, and all the men uh, who serve helping people move. 60 move is a pretty astounding uh, number of, of people who've been helped, and I just want to thank you for uh, working in, in our church body and working in the hearts of all of our men. We just ask that uh, as we do approach the subject uh, this morning, that you'd give us uh, uh, attentive minds and uh, uh, help us to be awake and sharp and thinking uh, so that we can uh, learn effectively and then turn around and pass this on to others and shape the lives that are around us with the truth of your word uh, that you've revealed to us. We thank you again and ask that you would use this to bless us, educate us, strengthen us, make us truly manly, uh, shaped after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, just a quick housekeeping thing. The next STM. So we're doing it now because we didn't want to wait until after the conference. So we're getting together now, but then we're going to have a big pause between now and the next STM. It'll be in October. October 8th. Uh, that'll give me and other guys time to prepare and get ready for the conference and then have some time on the other side to prepare again for a good STM. So October 8th uh, will be the next next time we meet together. The last time we met uh, in the spring was May 7th um, and the topic was the image of God. And now as we reconvene STM. I'm going to return to the same topic, and I'm going to do so for, uh, I'm actually going to repeat <laughs> pretty much the same lesson, uh, and I'm going to do so for practical, providential, and pedagogical reasons. Wow. Yeah, you like that? And they're all P's. Nicely alliterated. They all ended with A-L. Practical reason. Why are we going to do what we did back in May? I failed to hit record on the recorder, <laughs> so we don't have a digital record of the content of that day. It's like it didn't even exist. So um, that's the practical reason we're going to do this uh, same topic. And then secondly, uh, providentially, we realized that I forgot to hit record because providentially God wanted us to do this again. Um, he, uh, he would have us reinforce uh, the high value of what it means to be a human in a world that's at war with humanity. Uh, there are some issues, uh, you know, it, I, I couldn't rem remember as I returned to look at my notes, I, I had to remind myself of what we did, what we were talking about, because so much had gone on for me in the summer, and I'm, I'm sure it's like that for you. Um, so providentially, I think the Lord wants us to return to it again. And then third, pedagogically, repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning, so evidently the Lord knows you need this. I don't know if, if it's just we're extra thick, or, or we, but, I, but I do think uh, it's important for us to repeat this. So that said, um, due to the way that I've kind of reorganized the material, I, I'm not a gambling man, but I'd be willing to bet that none of you, um, even those with the best memories here, none of you will be able to tell I'm covering the same topic. Uh, but in the off chance I'm wrong about that, I thought I'd let you know so that those of you who have impeccable memories, you can be excused to go and make better use of your time if you'd like to do that. 
I would, I would completely understand. Seriously, if you got up and go, it'd be fine. All right, so just in case, here's a question to warm you guys up, just in case you need a warm up. Can a few of you remind us why this subject of biblical anthropology, um, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be made in the image of God, why is this subject so pertinent today in our time? Tom Askell, I don't know if you know this, Tom Askell is doing a conference in January on biblical anthropology asking the question, what is man? Um, so why the need? Ron. The value of life. Expand on that. What's that? No, I don't want to be on recording. <laughs> Ron, Ron, the government knows exactly what you're doing, where you are right now. You got a, you got a cell phone, right? That's a, that's a uh, people devaluing human life, especially conception of babies, things of that nature. They're trying to devalue human life. So it's important to understand who we are, what image we were made to represent. Okay. And, and yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, good answer. And in expanding on that, it's really important um, because it is true that the, the value of human life is tied to what we are, who we are, in whose image we're made. It's not, it's not okay to take, to snuff out a life because that life is, has, a, has a weight greater than you, greater than the individual. Yeah, thank you. Wayne? Yeah, I was just going to say that man was created to be a relational being. And if our view of man is incorrect or, or we have a very low view of man, it's going to skew our view of our relationship to our creator, right? We won't acknowledge a creator. It'll skew our relationship to each other, the, the love and the value that we have for one another, the engagement that we have for one another, and it'll skew our value to the rest of creation, right? And you see that with naturalists, for example right, putting themselves on the same level or, or even lower than uh, created animals or trees or, you know, whatever the issue of the day is. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. It, the, the, we are, the fact that we are relating, um, relational human beings, relational creatures, um, that's a timeless issue. It doesn't matter where we are on the, on the continuum of time. You can see perversions and distortions. I mean, going back to Romans 1, Worshiping and serve the worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, and worshiping, you know, things in the heavens and rocks and trees and all the rest. Um, man, that that really does a funky number on the brain when you're trying to relate to an inanimate object, an inanimate created thing, and you disregard the humanity around you. So. You're right, absolutely, and that's that's timeless. Yeah, David. All, all the gender, current gender issues are denial of Genesis too. Okay, so current, all the current gender issues, transgender issues, um, remaking the self after some you know impression, uh, internal sense, all that is a denial of Genesis two. It's a total rejection. Yeah, total rejection of Genesis one and two. God's God's authority. Um, it it is. It is, a live, it, it is a lived out, visible rebellion against the Creator. I'm, I'm violence, it's like self-inflicted violence. Like self-inflicted violence, or if you're looking at the, the Boston Medical Center and their, their little program to take your children and do gender uh, transformation, either therapy or drugs, hormones, or even surgery, 
it's violence it's it's violence to children i mean how how can this be any other thing but child abuse Piggyback off what David was saying, it's kind of an apologetic at this point, too, for us to learn this. We have a biblical understanding of man. We can help those people who have decided to take their identities into their own hands. And, you know, maybe they've faced conviction and have come back around or to try to bring that conviction upon them. Excellent. So it's an apolo- there's an apologetic um, uh, help that comes from the things we're studying as we talk to the world around us. Uh, to give a defense for what Scripture teaches about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a human being. So useful when we go out and talk to people because they are, they are totally confused on this issue. If we back up the truck a little bit too, we're just, we're just asking questions about even male and female roles in society. It's like we've blown way past that in, 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 in that confusion. And we've gone to, now we don't even know what I mean, we're making up other genders, you know, we're making up other stuff, and it's just living in a, in a, in a Plato world with our own bodies. Yeah. yeah so the Genesis account gives us, you know, the purpose for our existence, and that we're not some evolutionary step, and tied into that is the intrinsic value of life. You know, we're not just some transitionary form that whatever happens to us is meaningless. And you see that throughout the world is just, there's no regard. Well, whatever I do is fine because I'm just going to die anyway. Yeah. Or I'm just a step, you know, towards the next step. Yeah, the, so yeah, there is a, there's a stamp of when God created the world. It, it's not a world that continues to be in motion as far as things changing and ev- evolving. He put his stamp on it, said, let it be, and this is where we are. There's no change to what a man is or what a woman is or what humanity is ever since the beginning of time. And it's going to continue that way because that's how God made it. But and, and to have that sense of fixedness, that sense of stability, that gives you a foundation upon which you can grow and, and, and uh, you know, um, pursue life and pursue ambitions, be productive, be fruitful. But when everything's always in flux and always changing, man, there's no stable ground. You're, everything is shifting sand all the time. Think about this um, with t- talking to your kids, and I'll say this, especially your daughters. In an image-conscious world like we have, um, man, our daughters are see- getting that feedback all the time. They're seeing stuff, you know, whether it's in marketing or whether it's in entertainment or media or whatever it is, they're seeing image issues and they are particularly susceptible to the temptation to try to conform themselves to some some image in a in a in a marketing ad or something like that we as men need to help our daughters our granddaughters understand that it's not the body that god gave you this just the fact that we have a body that is that is a beauty and a a holy sacred thing and there's a reason why having a body in and of itself is something to rejoice in we're going to get into this something to rejoice in something to marvel over something to give glory to god over and the the kind of body you have big tall whatever it is um short different different statures 
that is not the issue. And to, to accept, not only accept, but rejoice in what kind of a body you have or whatever that God has given you. We need to help our, not just our daughters, but our sons too, but especially the girls. We need to help them understand that this is a good and glorious thing that God's given you. And to back up from maybe the, the look that they have and the look that they're, you know, what they see in the mirror, back up from that and just think more principally, deeply about the wonder of having a body at all. So there are so many um, different rabbit trails that we can chase with regard to the significance of biblical anthropology. Um, and if you need any further reinforcement of why the subject is important, has any, have any of you seen the Matt Walsh documentary called What is a Woman? Put your hand up if you've seen that. that I'd, 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 I'd commend that to you. It's got some things in there that you definitely will find offensive, but um, if you have any question about the relevancy of this topic, go look that up on, on uh, the internet, the documentary called What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. Uh, he's over with the Daily Wire, and he did a good job exposing the crisis uh, that we see of what is a woman, which goes back to what is a man, and really answers the deeper, or asks the deeper question, what is humanity? What is it to be a human being? But honestly, he, he in the documentary, they did what they could do. They exposed the issue and the crisis and what's the total confusion in our country and the consequence of some of that. But they are unable to provide a full answer, um, which we expect, we understand that. But scripture provides the answers. It goes deeper. Uh, it helps us to understand really what it is to be a human being. So first of all, we said, this is a little, well, I was going to say this is a little bit of review, but I guess it's all review, isn't it? Um, in anthropology, we're, we said already that man is a living soul. Man is a living soul. If you have your Bible, you want to look at it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This is a definitional verse because it reveals the origin of a human being. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So to be human is to share in the material nature of creation. That is the physical, the material stuff of creation. To be human is to share with that uh, creation. We have matter. We're made of matter. It's to share the breath of life with other living creatures as well. Other living creatures have breath in them. But we are, according to this verse, elevated above all other creatures by God's special attention in how he created the first man. God formed Adam, it says, uh, shaping him like a potter shapes the clay. God, later on, it says, God fashioned Eve and took her out of Adam. So there's a special God getting down into the dirt, into the clay, like a potter, getting down into his creation and forming, shaping Adam and then fashioning Eve out of Adam. So, sorry guys, but the woman is the 2.0 model. She's, she's the better one, and you know that just by looking, uh, looking at your wife and looking at yourself. <laughs> Brett, Brett and I were talking this morning, he's, we were in the, over in the restroom, and he said, you know, this is the first time I've looked in the mirror <laughs> this morning. <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it now. Kyle and Delich, uh, the Old Testament commentators write this, this Genesis 2-7, this is the foundation of the preeminence of man, of his likeness to God and his immortality. 
For by this he was formed into a personal being whose immaterial part was not merely soul, but a soul breathed out entirely by God, since spirit and soul were created together through the inspiration of God. End quote. So, as living human beings, we consist, we are composite creatures. We consist of matter and non-matter. We have a physical, a material substance, that's our body, and then we have a non-physical, immaterial substance, which is our spirit. Two parts, body and spirit, that's what constitutes a human being at the most basic level. So, what is a man? What is a woman? Matt Walsh made that uh, question plain. A man is an adult male human being. A woman is an adult female human being. Biology makes that plain. Physiology makes that plain. Um, but what is a human being? What is a human being? That's the deeper question. And only God can tell us that because that is a matter of, of, not, of not of biology or physiology. That is a matter more of ontology. You guys know what the word ontology? It's the study of being. So we understand in the study of being, ontology, ont uh, ontological facts, those are metaphysical realities. So metaphysical, it's not, so the physical is what we can study with science. The metaphysical, that requires revealed knowledge. It requires our creator to tell us what is, what being is, what existence is. And that really is, that, that really is when we're asking the question, what is a human being? We're getting back to that issue of existence and essence. We're getting down to issues of ontology. So that's why, that's why there is so much confusion today about a human being and launching from there, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. It's all up for grabs. It's all in flux. Why is that? Because there is no accepted standard in our country anymore of scripture. Scripture has been completely set aside, and now everybody's just making up their own truth. You hear it all the time. My truth, your truth, his truth, her truth, she truth, or whatever the pronoun is. It's all, it's all in flux. And so there's no, under, there's no common understanding anymore of ontology. There's no common understanding because there's no common understanding of what the authority source is. There's no under, common understanding or acceptance of the Bible is the word of God, and the Bible is our one sole universal absolute authority. But we have it. We have it, and that means we are, we are way ahead of the game because we have the word of God. So, back to the essential connection between our composition as human beings and God's purpose in making us so. Our essential composition is what, what is it? Two parts, body and spirit. So body and spirit. We've got a material part of us and we got an immaterial part of us bringing those together that's what constitutes us as a human being so why is that it's Herman Bovink I, I found so much help in Bovink you're going to hear his name come up over and over and it's because his, his, his section on this is really really helpful he says this man is spirit because he did not like the animals come forth from the earth but had the breath of life breathed into him by God, Genesis 2.7, because he received his life principle from God, Ecclesiastes 12.7, because he has a spirit of his own, distinct from the spirit of God, and because as such he is akin to the angels, can also think spiritual or heavenly things, and if necessary, also exist without a body. Okay? That's a temporary 
uh, situation, a, a form of existence for us to exist without a body, but that's what happens when our body goes to the earth before Christ returns. Uh, we, our spirit will go to be with the Lord, but that's a temporary uh, state of existence. Bob Inc. goes on to say, but man is soul, because from the very beginning, the spiritual component in him, unlike that of angels, is adapted to and organized for a body and is bound also for his intellectual and spiritual life to the sensory and external faculties. Let me break that down a little bit. To be soulish, to have a soul, means that our immaterial nature, our spirit, unlike the angels, angels, pure spirit, no body, right? So the angels, their interaction with the world is not mediated by anything material. It's not mediated by a body. Ours is. Our spirit is adapted in such a way to be organized around a body. So any input that comes into our spirit comes through what? Our five senses. They stimuli. We interact with the external world, feel things, taste things, touch things, smell things, all the rest. So we have inputs, inputs coming through the body and informing our spirit. That's what it is to be a soul. That's what it is to be a soul. And that's what it is to be a human soul. Our intellectual life, our spiritual life is bound to and dependent on sensory and external faculties. Okay, got that? So continuing, man is a soul because he can rise to the higher faculties. This is Bavink again, his language, only from a substratum of the lower ones. And hence, because he is a sentient and material being and as such is related to the animals. Man is a rational animal, a thinking reed, a being existing between angels and animals related to but distinct from both. He unites and reconciles within himself both heaven and earth, things both visible and invisible, and precisely as such, he is the image and likeness of God. End quote. You find that helpful? I hope so. And let me ask this, how does that relate to our Lord Jesus Christ? Anybody? Anyone? Yeah, Joe. He is most glorified in taking on a body, and through that human body, <laughs> okay. So, if ever creator and creation came together in one person, it's him. He is the image of the invisible God, right? And the firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation. So we follow after him, but he is the image of the invisible God in him, perfectly. Gotcha. So another way of saying what you just said, he is the perfect manifestation of the living soul. I don't know if that's correct or not. Yeah, perfect manifestation of the living soul. I like that because with him, any sensory input that comes in, there's no misinterpretation. There's no misunderstanding. Everything is, everything is perfectly integrated in him such that all the external stimuli, even in a fallen world, doesn't corrupt his thinking, doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't make mistakes through what he interprets. We do that all the time. Make mistakes all the time in what our senses tell us. Not in him. 
There was never a mistake. Yeah, Xavier. Um, I think about Hebrews, where he's talking about how um, he's hired into heavenly beings and yeah. he's the great high priest. Really glad your mind went there. We're going to go there at the end. And so keep that thought in mind. But that's, yeah, you're spot on. You're, you're way ahead of the game. You don't even need to stay here anymore. So, <laughs> no, no, but that's true. You're right. <laughs> Others of you are like, can I leave? Um, just as long as you're following Xavier. Yeah, Jeff. Not only did he perceive things perfectly through his senses, he applied his interaction with it perfectly, right? Yeah, he responded yeah. to it perfectly. Responded to it perfectly, right. So, well, yeah. Okay, so you can talk about the input, but then the output. So, you know, for us, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? For him, he can filter that all. And everything that comes out of him is a good, godly, holy, perfect, wise, righteous, everything coming out of him. If he is the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one, if he's, if he is, our elder brother, so to speak, if he's the first fruits of all those who are going to be raised from the dead, what does that mean for us? A lot of hope for us, right? A lot of hope for us. No matter what we see right now, take a snapshot of our life and all the ways we commit sins and our, make errors in judgment, all the flaws in our disposition and personality, all the ways we offend people and are offended by people and all the weaknesses and all that stuff. Man, one day that's gone. All that's gone because we're following after him. He is the prototype. He's the one we're following and the archetype. So great, great comment. Thank you. So God has constituted us as human beings, joining body and spirit together. And he's done this for a specific purpose. There's a reason that God has composed, the, composed us, composed human beings the way he has and that's our subject now as we turn our attention to being made in God's image. So being human, we are the image of God. So we said man is a living soul. And why is he a living soul? Why this joining together, this middle space between the animal and the angel world or the angel kind? Why this middle space where we exist? Because we are the image of God and this is, this is our purpose. This is what we're made for. So, go to Genesis 1.26, and look, let's look at these two words, image and likeness. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says the same thing in verse 27, using those words. So, let us make man in our image. That's the Hebrew word selem. And then after our likeness, that's the word damut. You can see over in Genesis 5, 1, you can see that same word likeness, damut. Uh, once again, as Adam gives, and Adam and Eve have a child, and that child is in their image, in Adam's image, in his damut, his likeness. So these words, image, selem, and likeness, damut, are used kind of interchangeably in Scripture, and we are tempted to see them as synonyms, but they're not synonyms. They're not identical in meaning. They're close, but not identical. You've got like, you go to the New Testament, and you can see the word image in acon, which you can hear the word icon in that. That's where that image comes from. You see that in 1 Corinthians 11.7, Colossians 3.10. Likeness, um, homoiosis, 
That's in James 3.9, and there's something similar in Ephesians 4.24 that talks about us being the likeness of God. It's ta, uh, ton kata theon, which is um, the according to God. That's, that's kind of a, a prepositional way of saying it. Franz uh, Delich says the image of God, the tselem, he sees that as the prototype. The image of God is a distinction between image and likeness. The image of God is human beings made in the prototype of God. So God is the cast metal mold, so to speak, for mankind, and we're created after him. Likeness of God, Damut, that points to God as the archetype that we imitate. So he's the perfect model set before us. He is that to which we conform. So we're creating his image like he's the prototype and coming off the assembly line are all of us who look like him. He's the prototype. And then coming off that assembly line and definitely in relation to the fall, but even before the fall, Adam and Eve were to look to God as the archetype, the, the one that they would pattern their life after, the one that they would be like, do as he does think his thoughts after him, relate like he relates. And definitely, as we have entered into the time of the fall in uh, human history, which we've been living through ever since the beginning, God is that archetype that we look to all the time. So image, prototype of our design, likeness, archetype that we imitate. The image of God. Um, only a few overt references in scripture to the image of God and I'm going to hand these out. So just shoot your hand in the air if you want to read one of these. Um, this first Genesis 126. Someone, okay, Wayne, you got that. Genesis 127. Who's got that? Chuck. Genesis 5, 1, and 2. Okay, Adam. Genesis 9, 6. Brett. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. David. Uh, James 3, 9. Adam. Uh, Adam. McClanahan, all right? Stake and McClanahan. I got to start calling you guys by Adam, by last names now. So let's see. And then Ephesians 4.24, all right, Ryan? And then um, Colossians 3.10, James. Okay, let's go back and just, we're just going to go through, read these, uh, and read them out loud because we want to pick you up on the microphone here for recording's sake. Um, but these, these are a few of the overt references in Scripture to the image of God. As these texts are read out loud, ask yourself, what's significant about being created in God's image? What's significant about it? What's, what matters about being created in his image? And then also ask, do we still possess the image of God or did the fall destroy it? Did the fall completely obliterate it or do we still possess it? Okay, let's start with Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that's a great voice too thank you so much uh 127 so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created him. Thank you. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay, thank you. Um, 
when God created man, so it's going right back to, in reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verse 27. Travis, can I just interject real quick there on that topic, or yep. that scripture? Because I think, if I'm reading that right, that's actually where we get the God-ordained establishment of pronouns. Because he, he, calls, <laughs> he calls them man, and uses masculine. And so I, I, you know, that's such a huge deal, because we're, I mean, I, if you're in corporate or higher ed or anything, that's, that's becoming, that's the, the new battlefront. That they're going to our HR names just started pushing that you need to use people for, for pronouns, and so and we're going to start facing persecution, if you will, for not cataloging to correct local pronoun usage. So. Yeah, well, and and that again, it goes right back to the issue of ontology. If if there is no biblical anthropology, biblical ontology, if people reject that, it's it's anyone's game, and they can make up whatever they want to. The question always in my mind is like, what's your authority source for that? You know, wh why should I? You know, why should I? If, if you're saying I got to conform to your truth, where, where's that written? You know, what's, what's making me do that? We have an authority source, a book that says, Genesis 127, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. There's a pronoun. Male and female. This is talking about gendering. He's not misgendering. He's accurately definitionally saying this is their sexual um, nature, male and female, he created them. Good, so yeah, Genesis 5, thank you for uh, making that comment. Who's got Genesis 9, 6? Your voice this way. <laughs> Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man his own image. Okay, thank you. That goes right back to your very first comment, Ron, about the issue of the sanctity of life. Why can't we take life? Why is abortion murder? That's that verse right there. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. God made man in his own image. That's why. There's, there's something more important about, than, about that individual than the individual himself, and it's what he is created for, what he is created to do and reflect. Thank you. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. All right, all right. So we see that is clearly pointing to difference in role, isn't it? There's a difference in role there, a, dis a distinction made. Um, our sisters in our, in our church here would, would echo that and amen it and appreciate it and love it. You take this out into uh, Ames Community College where David works, not so much. Not so much. Um, James 3.9. Who's got that? Uh, with it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse you. <coughs> we have been made in the likeness of God. Okay, so with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse our uh, cursed people. A again, this is a connection to their significance because they're created in the image of God. You can't curse them. Wow, watch what, not just, not just don't murder them when you're, when you're angry at them, but don't curse them either. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Who's got Ephesians 4.24? And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so there's a new self. Interesting, created after the likeness of God. That's the ton kata theon. Uh, reference. And then the parallel over in Colossians 3.10. Uh, 
and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The image of its creator in there, it's Akon. So it's uh, the icon reference, and that really does go back to uh, Genesis uh, 1. So here's, the, here's a, just a quick question. Post-fall, do we possess the image of God, or is it gone, obliterated? What would you say? How would you explain that? Adam? Uh, I would say you're still in the image of God. You can look at just the one um, Genesis 9-6 account is God is now saying to Moses, you guys are in the image of God. You can not shed each other's blood. Okay. There is a penalty for it. Okay, good, good. Yeah, Ron? I agree, but don't we lose some of his uh, characteristics prior to salvation? So after salvation, we regain some of that image, if that's the correct way to say it. <laughs> So yeah, let's uh, let's get some interaction on that. But yeah, um, I would agree. <laughs> when you go back to Colossians 3:10 and you try and import either position into that, only one works, right? You you cannot put on a new self who is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, unless that image continues to apply to the creation. I think I'm following you. <laughs> uh, Stated another way. Yeah, thank you. We cannot be called to be renewed to something we are not. Oh, okay, yeah, good. So we're coming back to something that we already were designed to be. That there is something, there is something lost in the fall, and that's why we must be renewed, uh, born again. The... Uh, it says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so being spiritually dead, there's definitely some, something wrong, something flawed that must be recovered and then brought back. Yeah, good. Ryan? Yeah, and along those lines, Ephesians 4, 22 and 23, you know, tell us, you know, the state that we're in. Uh, it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay. So, yeah, there's that that image of God that has been corrupted by, by sin, but can be renewed. So we didn't lose it. It's just been corrupted. Okay. So there's some distortion, some level of uh, <clears throat> hiding, something, something, that's, something that's changed, but it, it can be restored, recovered, and to Wayne's point, we can't get back to where we never were if it wasn't there to begin with. Yeah, thank you. Wes, and then Joe, and then Dennis, got to move on. Uh, I think there might be a little bit of a distinction between something we possess and something we display. Uh, this, I think, goes back to that. You're using That's good. And, and also, so it's, it's really, while we're image bearers, we're, we're, all, we're also the reflection of that. So it's not, I, I don't, I'm not sure about the lose, gain thing. With the exception of obviously you have that that transformation that happens in regeneration that it changes to, to see what the display is. So we we can put it this way, going back to that language from like Kyle and Delich, we can say that the prototype remains. We're all stamped after the image of God, and yet the ability to pursue and bear the likeness, the archetype, that's what's been lost and is recovered in salvation. Yeah. Good. That's a good point. Thank you. And isn't that the deception of, of the devil to us is that he, he promised in the beginning 
he said, you'll become like God. And they did it, and then they became less like God because they were now full of sin. And you, and you know what the real <laughs> trick is there? <clears throat> you know what Eve should have said? I'm already like God. I'm already created in his image. Totally satisfied, waiting for what's next from him. But she didn't, didn't come to her mind. She didn't think about that. She was deceived, led astray. We've all been deceived ever since. All entered into the same deception, the same trick. Yeah, and that is the irony of it, isn't it? That once we follow that lie, that deception, we took a step down, and it's a, it, that's, that first step was a doozy. <laughs> it, it landed us in the pit. So we can see clearly from Genesis 5, Genesis 1, was that? Okay, Genesis 5, Genesis 1, Genesis 5 reiterates Genesis 1, 26, 27, that, and tells us really the image of God does remain after the fall. The fact of sin doesn't obliterate that image of God, the prototype in us, or the prototype that's stamped on us. Um, and the image of God is the basis of capital punishment. In Genesis 9, 6, the, the fall did not ab abrogate that or obliterate that. Um, the image of God is the basis of our ethical behavior. We can't curse one another. Um, because we bear the image of God um, and all of that. Let's, um, I think we have time. So, so what do you think, there's a lot of good answers in this broad question, but what is significant to you about being created in, in God's image? A lot of good answers, okay? There are wrong answers and there are stupid answers. But there are a lot of good ones, and I know you guys are sharp. So, um, but, and, and I want you to think about the significance of being created in God's image. Think about that in answering, maybe like Adam said earlier, apologetic answer to the confusion of our world, the time that we live in. What is significant about being created in God's image? Yeah. So looking at the first one that we looked at, Genesis 1, 26, you have a distinction of man from all other creatures that have been created up to that okay. point. So we're not just a we're not just an animal. Exactly. Yeah. So that could easily be applied to the apologetic of, you know, here's an evolutionist in front of me who thinks we came from goo, and now I can point back and say, no, 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 we are distinct. We're special. We are unique. We are the crowning glory of God's creation. And if they say, Adam, that's speciesism. You're doing violence to the other creatures. Like, wait till I go. Wait till I go hunting. You know, <laughs> hunting season's coming. <laughs> yeah. So meat is murder. Your speciesism. Your arrogant. What's so? What do you? What do you? How do you answer that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Amen. Yes. Okay. Anybody have a different answer? <laughs> because what what Adam's doing by saying yes, now I, I understand your your answer. Um, but what he, what you do when you say yes, I am guilty of speciesism. You're entering into their worldview and you're acknowledging it has some merit. I am a sinner in your world. I'm just committing arrogant you know sins of speciesism and I'm murdering animals because meat is murder. So by saying that, we could say it tongue-in-cheek and, and, and watch their funny reaction, you know, leftist tears and all the rest of it. But what, what would be another response that we could give? Animals are not created, created, they're created by God, but not in the image of God. And Cre they are under, they are, we are called to be fruitful and subdue the earth. 
Okay, good. So, so let me let me just piggyback on that because what you're doing by by answering that follow-up, that charge of speciesism and meat is murder, you're going right back to your authority source, right? What can we do with the the uh, the progressive or the liberal or the whatever they are, the the vegan? What can we do in answering them? We ask for their authority source. Says who? Says you? Well, that's your truth. But what about this guy who's got a competing truth? Or me, that got a competing truth. What makes you more right than this guy or this guy or that girl or that person, right? And I've actually talked to the animals and they tell me, they agree with me, so. I think one thing that sticks out to me about being created in the image of God is that sin offends me and sin offends God. Whenever somebody's murdered, it's offensive to me as a person, even if I don't know them, because the law is written on my heart. And you see that even with unbelievers. Hmm. Unbelievers, sin offends them because they're made in the image of God. Hmm. But yet they, su they suppress that truth and unrighteousness because they love their own sin. But the other sins offend them. So it is a corruption of the image of God in us, but we still retain it in that we know that it's true because sin offends us as people. Wow. That's a great answer. So that's a good apologetic answer. Again, asking the question of why is it that sin offends any of us? We see news stories all the time of heinous crimes. I woke up to one this morning that uh, over in San Carlos, California, a guy beheaded a woman with a samurai sword. Did you guys see this? Uh, a samurai sword. Okay, so now the government's got to come and take away our samurai swords <laughs> along with our guns because those are dangerous. But seriously... I, I look at that, and I want to I strap on guns and go hunt those people down. I, I know we all feel the same way. Why do we feel that way? Because exactly what you said. The law of God is written on our heart. There's a sense of indignation and offense over any sin that's, that's committed, any sin that's perpetrated, and especially one like this, something as heinous as murder. But the, but the vegan has the same sense of indignation. Where do they get that? if we're all just the same. We don't have the same sense of indignation that there was roadkill on the, on the I-25, you know? We don't have the same, don't have the same sense of indignation. Let's, uh, let's go over here, Nick, and then come back to you guys. So, so this week I was with, kind of started back in the school, and we were supposed to, we were doing some group activities, and there was, we were supposed to come up with kind of a set of ethics that our group was supposed to abide by. I mentioned the golden rule. And one of my classmates quipped, well, what if I, you know, what if I, what I want to be done to me is, um, you know, I, I like to be hurt all the time. You know, it's kind of like messing with the golden rule. And so this, this concept of being, being made in the image of God gives clarity to our ethics and our morality because if we're made in the image of God, then our morality and principles like the golden rule are defined based on the <coughs> character of God. Without that, you don't. You do have confusion, you know, and there's looseness in the definitions. Yeah. What a what a sicko. But but yeah. Thank you. Over here, guys. Yeah, I I think this just sort of generalizes what everybody's saying. Right? When you have the, the something that's significant about this is you have an understanding of how to respond in this life. Um, and confrontation and, and uh, frustration, discouragement, you can fall back on 
on at least the truth of knowing what you, the way you're created, how you're created, and how you what you're emulating and exemplifying. And it goes back to that you know standard for morality um, to understanding you know that you know the hatred for sin, of course, but. It's you know how you interact with people, how you disciple, how you live your life, how you live marriage, how or live through a marriage, how you have children and raise children. Um, so I think they're foundationally, it's all those things. It's how you. You know, just to piggyback on that comment, it's interesting that the biblical worldview. Interesting in the sense that we should highlight this more. The biblical worldview comports with how we actually live our lives. Every human being, how they actually live their, our lives. The whole speciesism thing and, you know, I'm a sadist, a sadomasochist, you know, I, no, nobody lives like that. That's, 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 just a, that's just an objection thrown in for the sake of argument. Um, some, you know, macabre, perverse exception to the rule that they want to then define the rule with. And the same thing with you know, speciesism and arrogance against animals and all that stuff. All that is just smokescreen. How we actually live our lives comports perfectly with the biblical worldview. Comports perfectly with what God says. I think we just need to point that out to people. That's not how you live. I'm just going to follow up too with Ecclesiastes. What is the purpose and meaning of life? Mm -hmm. Because there is purpose. If we're made, if it's significant that we're made in the image of God, it's significant because God has given us purpose. Mm -hmm. He's given us a purpose to honor and to glorify Him. And that reflects, you know, the understanding of our sin. And it, it reflects our understanding of our relationship with God. And then it gives us meaning and purpose. It comes to a response, like to say, how do we live? How then shall we live? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good book title. That would be really good. <laughs> <laughs> Ron? I have yeah, more questions. It, would I be misunderstanding if I were to say that I don't think these people are devaluing or overvaluing humans, but they're denying the God-free spirit that he gave us? So if, he, if you make us all equal with animals, then I can understand their point of view. If you take away the God-free spirit, we are no longer following God. Because I think God breathed the spirit to make us bound to him. Even non-believers are bound to him because of the human spirit coexistence. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. are they really denying the God-free spirit that's within us, not human itself? I'm just thinking outside the box. Well, well so yes, by, no I, no, I think it's a good, you're wrestling, it's a good question you're wrestling with, but think about it this way. If they are denying the God-breathed spirit, what are they essentially denying? One of the well, true, yes. Number one, well, and we've said this before that if you if you do violence to God, to theology, you ruin every other ology as well. You you do violence to humanity as well. So think about this: this if if they deny the God-breathed Spirit in us, they're denying one of the two essential components of what it is to be a human being. So they are denying humanity in essence. They're they're totally. They're doing violence to the hum humanity by saying this part of us does not exist. That's what we were seeing in the whole COVID thing, that the, the, the health officials and the government saying, we're going to keep you safe, we're going to keep you safe, we're going to keep you safe, and so we're going to shut down everything that has to do with your relationships. You can't relate with each other, got to distance from each other. We're going to keep you safe. And the only thing in their minds is 
your your material physical existence they want to put you in a bubble and make sure that that continues on because that's all it is to be a human being to them and we're protesting and saying no we have a immaterial part of us that needs to that is just as important if not more important it's vital to what it is to be a human being and so we must keep the churches open and we must allow hospital visits and we must allow humans to interact because we're related like Wayne was saying we're relational we relate to God we relate to one another and we need that we need truth to feed our souls and so shutting down for us, you know, for human beings to shut down churches is like basically shutting down no more food. No more food for your body. Shutting that down. So it's, it's a great thing you, you brought out there. Thank you. All right. Um, so there are several systematic theologies that kind of unpack this issue of what it means to be created in the image of God. So we've talked about what the component parts of being a human are and why do we have those component parts of material and immaterial, body and spirit, because we're, we need to be created in, in God's image. That's, that's why and that, what is the purpose of being created in God's image? It's kind of back to what uh, John was saying. We'll come back to that later about glorifying God. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Uh, Burkhoff enumerates this saying that the image of God means five things, five things. It means we are, I'll just run through them real quick and then I'll come back and unpack. We are immaterial. We are intellectual, volitional. We are moral, ethical. Number three, number four, material. And you say, wait a minute, God, that material. And then number five, representational. So number one, we're immaterial. Number two, we're intellectual, volitional. Number three, we're moral, ethical. Number four, we're material. And number five, we're representational. That's what it is to be made in the image of God. Immaterial means in the, um, this is Burkhoff, in the soul or spirit of man, that is in the qualities of simplicity, spirituality, invisibility, and immortality. That is our immaterial self. Immaterial self, my, my spirit Obviously, it's a spiritual reality. Kind of think about angelic spirits. There's a, a, it's, it's, a, it's a simple essence. So it's not, my spirit isn't divided into multiple personalities or, you know, whatever. It's a simple essence. It's a spiritual essence. It's an invisible essence. You can't see my spirit. I can't see yours. Um, and it's immortal. God made it to be immortal, not to die. And that's one of the reasons we know there is an eternal hell and an eternal heaven. The spirit, the soul is immortal. So that's what it is to be created in God's image being immaterial. Also, number two, intellectual or volitional. Intellectual, uh, our thinking and understanding. Volitional, our willing, our acting, our, our um, decision making. Burkhoff says this in the psychical powers or faculties of man as a rational and moral being, namely the intellect and will with their functions. So just as God um, purposes, decrees, there is rationality. We are too made in his image and, and have that as well. Some more or less than others, right? Um, Moral and ethical aspect to the image of God. Uh, 
Burkhoff says this, in the intellectual and moral integrity of man's nature, revealing itself in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and he quotes, or he cites Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. So being made renewed in the image of God, or being made in the likeness of God, the image of our creator, being renewed in that way, we're being renewed in knowledge, in holiness, in righteousness. We're conforming to God as an ethical, moral standard, and that's what Nick was saying about about um, the golden rule and why, that, why this ethical moral standard of God sets the standard for our behavior and how we treat not only ourselves, but also one another. More, um, number four, material. The material aspect of being created in God's image. Burkhoff says this, in the body, not as a material substance, but as the fit organ of the soul, sharing its immortality, and as the instrument through which man can exercise dominion over the lower creation. So the fact that we have a body allows us then to exercise the dominion that God has created us to do over his creation. Again, I, I really like how Bob Inc. expands on this thought. Listen, it's a longer quote, but <clears throat> hopefully... Um, Hopefully you'll find this beneficial as I did. The human body belongs integrally to the image of God. A philosophy that either does not know or rejects divine revelation always lapses into empiricism or rationalism, materialism or spiritualism. But scripture reconciles the two. Man has a spirit, pneuma, but that spirit is psychically organized and must, by virtue of its nature, inhabit a body. It is the essence of humanity to be corporeal and sentient. That is to have corporeal, to have a body, and to be sentient, to be a thinking, acting, volitional individual. Hence, man's body is first, if not temporally, then logically. Man's body is first formed from the dust of the earth, and then the breath of life is breathed into him. He is called Adam, after the ground from which he was formed. He is dust and is called dust. The body, the body is not a prison, but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty. Think about that when you're talking to your daughters. Your body is not a prison. Your body, your image, your form, your face is not a mistake. It is a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty. And just as constitutive for the essence of humanity as the soul. It is, the body is, our earthly dwelling, our organ or instrument of service, our apparatus. I'm going to see this in Romans 6. Your body, your, the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, everything about you, instruments of righteousness. It's your apparatus. It's how you get done the things that God has given you to do. It's how you exercise your stewardship. The members of a body are the weapons with which we fight in the cause of righteousness or unrighteousness, Romans 6.13. The body is so int integrally and essentially a part of our humanity that though violently torn from the soul by sin, it will be reunited with it in the resurrection of the dead. By the way, both the unrighteous and the righteous will be reunited with a body for their eternal state. The nature of the union of the soul with the body is not ethical, but physical. It is so intimate that one nature, one person, one self is the subject of both and all their activities. There's always the same soul that peers through the eyes, 
thinks through the brain, grasps with the hands, and walks with the feet. Although not always present in every part of the body in its full strength, it is nevertheless present in all parts in its whole essence. It is one and the same life that flows throughout the body, but operates and manifests itself in every organ in a manner peculiar to that organ. Now this body, which is so intimately bound up with the soul, also belongs to the image of God. All that is just an, ex that's end, end quote, Bob Inc. there. All that is just an expansion on that material aspect of what it means to be created in God's image. So important. And then that leads to the final thing, representational aspect of what it means to be created in God's image. Um, it's in man's dominion over the earth. We represent God in exercising dominion over the earth. We find the thought again, helpfully expanded by Bob Inc. He says, Genesis 1.26 clearly indicates that the image of God manifests itself in man's dominion over all of the created world. The portrayal of the paradisal state in Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrates that the image of God includes conformity to the will of God and recreation in conformity to the image of God or Christ primarily consists in putting on the new man, which among, among other things consists in righteousness and holiness of truth. End quote. So just to summarize this uh, image of God teaching, to be the image of God as we are, it means we are immaterial. We have an immaterial aspect of us. We are intellectual and volitional. We think, we reason, we understand things, we make decisions, we act. Um, it means that our thinking, reasoning, and acting is to conform to a moral and ethical standard. That's another aspect of being created in God's image. Again, that's that archetype, that likeness that we are pursuing. We want to be like God in that moral, ethical righteousness and holiness. We have a material aspect to us. That is, uh, being the image of God, we, we manifest what's going on by uh, inside by what happens on the outside. And then all that makes us the perfect representational form. Um, that's another aspect of the image of God so that we can represent God and exercise dominion over the earth. All those thoughts build on each other, okay? So, what is it that separates us from the angels? This is back to, where'd Jack go? Is it, this is back to Jack's, so I'm about to read his passage. Um, hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's working that up. Um, so, let's see if I can hold off until he gets back here. So, so what, what separates us from the angels? Here's the difference. The, uh, the image of God in man means we're not only immaterial creatures, but we're material creatures. There you are. Welcome back. Um, so we're not only immaterial creatures, we're material creatures as well. It's, it, we have a body. It's the privilege of having a physical body that allows us to partake of both worlds, the immaterial and the immaterial. That's a special gift of grace. It's a privilege that sets us apart from the angelic realm. High creatures that they are, powerful, majestic, but they do not have our experience. They, they, they lack the experience of what it means to be a human being. Listen to this from Bob Inc. again. As spirit, <clears throat> man is akin to the angels and soars to the invisible world, but he is at the same time a citizen of the visible world connected with all physical creatures. There's not a single element in the human body that does not also occur in nature around him. Thus, man forms a unity of material and spiritual world, a mirror of the universe, a connecting link, 
compendium, the epitome of all of, of all of nature, a microcosm, and precisely on that account, also the image and likeness of God, his son and heir, a micro-divine being. Micro, not a divine being, but a micro-divine being. Don't accuse him of heresy. Um, and finally, all these marks of the image of God in us, immaterial, intellectual, volitional, moral, ethical, material, all four marks qualify us for the representational aspect. We are privileged to represent God in exercising his dominion over the earth. That final point explains, goes to the purpose. This is what John was talking about. What is the purpose? Why did God create us in his image? It's that we should represent God as head over creation, exercising his dominion. So we could say it this way, man is the image of God for the dominion of God to the glory of God. So we are the image of God for the purpose of the dominion of God through us, all of that to the glory of God, to bring glory to him. That's why we exist. Man, teach that to your kids, your grandkids. Tell them why they exist. Tell them, the, tell them, tell them what God did to prepare them for that purpose, making them in his image, giving them body and spirit, making them material and immaterial. They are the perfect model, the one that is going to exercise dominion over the, over the world, made in his image, and they do that to the glory of God. So as the created world is to God, so man's body is to his spirit. Um, since God created man in his image, he's foreshadowed the incarnation from the very start, hasn't he? This is what we've, we mentioned at the very beginning, Colossians 1.15. Bob Inc. says, just as God, though he is spirit, is nevertheless the creator of a material world that may be termed his revelation and manifestation, with this revelation coming to its climax in the incarnation, so also the spirit of man is designed for the body as its manifestation. So in other words, the entirety of the creator world, visible and invisible, reveals who God is and what he's like. In a similar way, the whole of man's visible external life reveals who he is and what he's like. It's what we hear from Colossians 2, 9, and 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you've been filled in him, who's the head of all rule and authority. So when God um, created Adam in his own image, he set Adam apart to represent himself by exercising dominion over the earth. Um, I'm going to walk through a couple things, but I want to see, based on what I've said already, any questions, any comments? John. Uh, when you're talking about angels, do angels have emotions? Can they experience the emotions that we experience? You know, it says that angels rejoice. So they rejoice over the salvation of sinners. So I would say that, yes, it, angels also have emotion. But I, I, do, I wouldn't presume to say how they experience that, if it's human-like or whatever, but it's... But because, I mean, they were in a created state. So they were either fallen or not. And that's the way they remain. And I'm assuming they probably were, their purpose for creation was different than you would say than what our purpose was. Exactly. They're not created in God's image. 
they, they, their, their purpose is also to bring glory to God. But as Hebrews says, their purpose is really to uh, minister to those who will inherit salvation. That's the purpose of the holy angels and the purpose of the demons. And they also have a purpose as well. But do they experience emotion? Demons know that God is one just like we do, and they shudder. So there's a fear emotion, right? So yeah, there's, I'd say, yes, I do experience emotion. Yeah, yeah kind of associated with the heel sayings, uh, angels are created in spirit. God is spirit. Angels are spirit. So in a sense, why wouldn't they be in the image of God in that regard, in the spirit realm? And what it's interesting is the plan of salvation doesn't apply to angels. No. And all this, I think what distinguishes us from them is the fact that all this business of having a body, being corporeal, and having a spirit, and all this that God made, salvation is for man, but not for angels. True. And then when angels rebel, you know, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, Yet, that didn't bring sin into creation when they rebelled, hmm. even though they are created. Hmm. Uh, Interesting, it took, this, it took man to do that, right? Man is, has that distinction mm -hmm. because all of the universe suffers, groans under sin. That means the universe will, will deteriorate eventually. I mean, we can, science can show that there's heat death will eventually occur mm -hmm. because of entropy and uh, and so it affects all of creation but yet it didn't affect the angels in a sense they're created but that sin did not affect creation well yes and no so i i totally track with what you're saying and agree that so that once once there was sin once there was a testing of the angels satan and a third of the angels departed and they were fixed in their rebellion unable to re be redeemed the holy angels also fixed in their holiness and permanently that way no longer to undergo the test but because by virtue of the fact that they are created sin did enter into creation in that sense did it affect the material world no there was a barrier between the immaterial and the material world and yes it stayed within the immaterial world fixed in them but then it crossed over when Adam and Eve followed Satan's temptation and sin entered into the visible, material, physical world. Yeah, but that's, that's great insights in there. Uh, great insights, yeah, good. From, from an evangelism perspective, um, I've had a conversation on uh, how the immaterial dual nature of man shows up. And a little bit. Yeah, uh, so, so in, in evangelism, I, I had a conversation where the person I was talking to kind of questioned, well, if, if I have a, he came from this total thing, I deny all deity, you know. No supernatural. So yeah. No supernatural, nihilist. Um, if we are spiritual beings, how does, how does me being a spiritual being show up in my life? The only thing I could think of at the time was the conscience. Um, would that be a manifestation of our spiritual being? What else would there be? Well, I think the conscious, conscience alerts us to the reality of the inner life, the law of God written on the heart. Um, it, it's like a, 
in, in an immaterial way, a spiritual way, it's like nerve endings for the for the for the spirit. So in the same way that my hand, if I put it close to a flame, my nerves tell me, "Dummy, take your hand away from the flame," and I. But it's it's just basically giving a warning. Um, I can put my hand into something soft and pet a cat or whatever, and it feels good. And nerve endings say, "Hey, safe. That's okay." Flame, not safe. The conscience is like that, either affirming or, you know, rejecting what we're trying to do, what we're planning, what we're thinking, what we're imagining, what we're actually doing, what we're not doing. That reveals that there's something imprinted on us, which is, you know, Romans 2, the law of God. And our conscience then responds to our conformity or lack of conformity to the law of God by either accusing or defending us. So I say that's, uh, that's one way. And the, just even the fact that you are thinking and reasoning that out with that individual is proof in and of itself that there's something immaterial, you know, at work there. There is your spirit, which is invisible, simple, rational. It's having a conversation with that spirit. And the vehicle for that conversation is the body your vocal cords and sound waves going and hitting his ears and going in interpreted by his brain. But it goes down, his, it's not his brain, his gray matter that's doing all the processing. I mean, it's processing, but, it's, but the real thinking is done in the immaterial part of him. So I would just point to the fact that we're having this conversation right now and we're reasoning back and forth as evidence of immaterial nature. And if I slap you in the face, you're going to say, hey, that's wrong. And you're going to make a judgment that's an evidence of your immaterial nature. If I reach down into your pocket and pick it and take the wallet and take out all the money and put that back, you're going to say, foul. Um, let's go here, here, and then got to just quick move on. Jack's back, and we'll got, I got a quote for you. Mountain of what he said, wouldn't the of the Holy Spirit be that representation of that spirit within us because it's spirit to spirit, the yes. then the outward showing would be the main part, the outward love, the outward expression yeah. of that spiritual fruit that we get. I would yeah. think that would be good. That's a good point. There are, there are, those, um, there are those virtues that we see and appreciate in other people and the lack of virtue that we condemn. So the fact that we have these virtues that grow up within us, that shows a spirit to spirit, God's spirit to our spirit, as we're being renewed in the likeness of our creator. But then as we either love or don't love, we, we manifest those things on the outside, and, and that's, a, a, again, an evidence of our immaterial nature. Yeah. David? Yeah. So um, I had all day professional development thing yesterday at Ames. And, um, Sorry. <laughs> so I was trying to think, you know, what, how does this conversation inform what I just was, you know, indoctrinated with yesterday? And um, so one topic I forgot to mention, like kind of a battlefield where this topic is incredibly relevant, is CRT intersectionality. And that was prominent yesterday. Uh, there was one, uh, one of our psychology professors, I think, who got up and listed all of her privileges. and. and uh, and then she actually said for it, I couldn't believe it, she said, shame on you. She was saying it to herself, but by, by implication, all the rest of us too, hmm. based on our privileges. So, I mean, she threw in a, a moral judgment on things that, I mean, like we're talking here, that are just innate to us. They're nothing that we're responsible. I mean, like, 
culpable for. You know, our race, gender, nation of origin, family of origin, our, our first language. You know, I mean, all these things that there's no reason that anyone should be ashamed of that, no matter what it is. But, but interesting, even backing up from that, the fact that in this kind of new woke religion, there is a sin problem that they need to solve. They need redemption. They need absolution. They'll never find absolution because there is no redemption in that system, but they're always seeking it, so they're always doing penance. Always doing penance to try to absolve themselves of this sense of shame. The shame that comes from guilt. The guilt that comes from privilege. So, undeserved privilege. So they have a sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice, injustice. It's all warped. But man, tap into that and say, I'm sorry, where do you get that from? You know, where do you get the sense of shame, honor, what's good, bad, evil, righteous? Those are, those are great uh, tensions in their worldview that you can draw out and make them feel it. You know, that they're just making this up out of whole cloth. But they have a sense of there's a rightness and a wrongness. There's an oughtness and an ought notness. Ought notness. If I wrote that out, that would look really perverse. So. Bavink says this. He says, the incarnation of God is proof that human beings and not angels. Jack, this is for you, man. Human beings, incarnation of God is proof that human beings and not angels are created in the image of God. And the human body, an essential component of that image. From the beginning, creation was so arranged and human nature was immediately so created that it was amenable to, the, to and fit for the highest degree of conformity to God and for the most intimate dwelling of God. God could not have been able to become man if he had not first made man in his own image. Precisely because the body being the organ of the soul, belongs to the essence of man and to the image of God, it originally also participated in immortality. So when God created Adam in his own image, that's end quote, by the way, he set Adam apart for this exercising dominion, for this representation of himself on the earth. Adam failed in his probation. We've talked about that before. He's put under a test. That was not an unforeseen fluke, um, like it wasn't an oops. This is planned. It was part of the original plan. It was predetermined by divine decree. And Adam's failure allowed us to see God's grand design to sum up all things in Christ in God incarnate. Okay? So let's uh, turn to a couple passages here as we kind of wrap up. One of them, I need someone to read... Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Okay, Xavier's got that one. And somebody else to read Hebrews 1. I'll get a couple readers in Hebrews because we're going to get a long section there. We'll start in Hebrews 1, 13. Let's go first to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. So, and uh, Xavier's going to read that. So, Colossians. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, whether on heaven or on earth. Loud, loud. Preacher's voice. All right. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, thank you so much. Great reading. So the image of the invisible God in Christ. And the purpose of that is that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him and then through him to reconcile, put everything in their proper order, all things to God himself through Christ. He is the linchpin. He is, the, he is what holds everything in heaven and earth, in all of history. He holds it all together. And it says that he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits, as, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. He's the first fruits from the dead. So the, the, the first fruits, meaning, referring to like, you know, you know um, harvesting your crop, and you take the first fruits of that harvest and take it to the Lord and thank him, and you give it as an offering, a grain offering. You come back, harvest the rest of the crop, and that's for you. So we are the rest of the harvest. We're following him. So what he is, we are, we are joining him in that. We are becoming like him, like Christ. But it's in him, in him alone, because he has divine nature, human nature, the only one of his kind in one person. He is the linchpin. He's the one who holds it all together, reconciling all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Fantastic passage. Now let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Let me get a reader to start out there, and I'll just, when I think you've read enough, I'll rudely interrupt you and pass it on to someone else. Yes. Pat. Start Hebrews 1. Um, yeah, 113. Shout it out. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, there's a purpose of angels right there. All right, keep going. Keep going. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, thank you. Someone else start in verse 5. <coughs> Read it out. Not subject to angels, the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But the one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you have concern about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor. And he and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, 
He left nothing that is not subject to him. Okay, stop there. Someone else pick it up from there. Thank you, Adam. James, you want to go? Yeah. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. No, no, back up, because okay. I cut him mid-sentence. At present, we don't see yet everything subject to, in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, stop there. Someone else? Pick it up. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to the Lord, to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tear off your name to my brothers in the midst of their congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, I and the children, children have given me. Okay, thank you. So he's calling us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We are his brethren. He's the elder brother. He's going ahead of us. And in the congregation, there'll be a time when we hear him sing. Awesome. Someone pick it up from verse 14 and read to the to verse 17. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Keep going. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Go ahead and read the next verse, too. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Okay, thank you so much. So we see that this champion of the human race, the one in whom all things are summed up, who reconciles all things, whether in heaven or on earth, he brings everything together in Christ, this one who has a divine nature, human nature, the God-man, the only one like him, and yet he is our champion. He is our, the preeminent one of all creation. He's the firstborn and the first fruits. And as he looks behind him, as we follow, he's a merciful, faithful high priest. He knows what it's like to traverse what we've traversed. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he offers help, generous help, kind help to us as we follow him. Awesome. This is this is like meaty stuff in such a short, just, just two chapters here. This is the entire plan of redemption unfolded for us in Hebrews 1 and 2. This is really what we've been trying to talk about in this whole image of God study and the humanity study and what is man. This is, this is what we are. We point to him. So when you ask a question of how do I be more manly, 
It's not about, you know, going and getting shooting lessons or more tattoos. It's about looking to Christ and following after him. Uh, the, the, that section, it kind of answers that question that Wayne was uh, bringing up about the immaterial because of the help that he gives us. Because um, uh, really the conscience is kind of a window, like you said, that helps us to understand that there is something that is, uh, that is not able to be seen even for unbelievers. That's why God says their, accuse, their conscience is accusing or else um, um, excusing them on the day when, you know, uh, so, so. When uh, God will judge the secret. Yeah, exactly, so, because of the judgment. Mm -hmm. So um, it is by faith that we see the immaterial, which is listening to God's word. Yeah. It is not by sight. So it is hidden for the most part, except the conscience, basically, and some things like authority, federal authority, things like that, where those are like windows of the immaterial aspect of man. Mm -hmm. that, that mankind generally denies or tries to find another re way around. Like one of the major keys of secularism, which is that denial, is that you uh, find some way to excuse the conscience. You have to, because mankind carries it around himself. So, but, we, but there are these other ways that it ends up leaking out, because you have a conscience that is hurting. So you can misassign it and say, oh, I feel guilt because I'm white, or something like that. You can do something weird like that. But basically, you still have a conscience. So when Christ saves us, he gives us the power to live by faith and not by sight. And that comes out, like uh, Ron was saying, in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is really the evidence that people have um, of the immaterial, because it's inexplicable materially. Mm -hmm. And so, so for, for that's why our, our testimony, and I've you know, failed on this my, my whole life different times, especially, but your, your, your testimony is absolutely critical to your evangelism because you can't prove the immaterial. You can't prove that, um, this stuff except by their conscience, and their conscience is pricked by your um, inexplicable ability to follow Christ who is our help, our help in doing that. We wouldn't be able to do it on our own. We, we provide corroborating testimony to the truth through the transformation of our life according to the fruit of the Spirit that's being produced in us. First one, love. Love and all the rest, right? That's, that's inexplicable on, on human power alone. You can't find, if you define love and joy and peace and all those other virtues, you define them biblically, you will not find that anywhere in humanity except and those who have been born again, who have a new nature, who are being transformed by God, being renewed in their minds. And you're absolutely right that that, that transformation, that's transformed life and a renewed mind is, is, is the corroborating evidence to the testimony that we give preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel, and if God gives them, grants them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe and understand, faith, he grants them that, everything makes sense. And... All of the world makes sense. All the world lines up into its proper order and everything comports that 
all of reality comports to the truth and truth comports to reality. Because otherwise they're right. We're yeah. just vermin. Why not eradicate them? Sure. You know, it doesn't really matter. Nothing, yeah. nothing really matters. And yet they actually can't live that way. They can't live that way. They can't live that way. So here, I, I, gotta, I gotta move on. So, so but yeah, it was a very good summary, but we're already uh, a good bit after. So just, I just wanna encourage you guys, as you think about these things, let them settle in. I want to encourage you to take these home and teach them. Teach them to your kids, your grandkids. Teach them to your friends. Just talk about these things. Even if you're not perfect at articulating things, just get into the conversation and get used to talking about these kinds of issues. And also, once you do explain these things, I was going to do this if we had time and we kind of ran out of time, but um, play a game of the, you know what I mean when I say this, play a game of the screw tape letters. You know, the screw tape letters is you got, you know, screw tape and wormwood and the one demon is given the, you know, his, his nephew demon advice on how to trip up the human race. Well, think about what ideologies would really mess up humanity about humanity, you know, and, and play that game. See, see what it is and what they come up with. Just play that with your kids or whatever. And then, and then imagine yourself, the second part of that, don't leave them there, but the second part of that is imagine yourself talking with a you know, woke progressive, someone who's completely bought in hook, line, and sinker to social cultural revolution, LGBTQ+, all that stuff, and using some of the touch points of longing that they have, that's, that they, they themselves express, desires for justice and equity and authenticity and equity and all that stuff. How do you paint the right picture of humanity for them? by biblical anthropology. So play those games with your, your family. And um, just a reminder, next STM is October 8th. Put that on your calendar and let me close this in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for, um, for what you have revealed to us in your word about what we are, uh, what our, the essence of us is, we thank you for the high and holy calling you've given us and the purpose for which we're created and that you have given us all the stuff needed to fulfill that purpose. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself has fulfilled all of your will and, and his, is the preeminent man. He is the progenitor of a new race of humanity and we are privileged by your grace to be counted among that humanity. We just ask that you would help us to, to walk in the truth. And as Brett was saying, and as Ron was saying to, and others, that we would live out this life of a renewed mind, a transformed life that is corroborating evidence, giving testimony to the truth of your word, to the power of your gospel to change us. It also points us, I mean, the gospel is just the start. Once we... Once we're saved and once we're reconciled to you, now we live out our purpose to represent you on the earth, to be the image of God, to, to exercise dominion over the earth. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that here and now in our lives. We pray that you would help us as we teach our families, evangelize our friends and neighbors and coworkers. We ask that you would make us godly men after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.